We believe running is freedom and empowerment. We believe running solves problems and makes people happy. We even believe that if more people run, the world will be a better place. We believe in running because it is our passion. This is the Big Peach Running Company Run ATL Podcast with your host, Mike Cosentino. From the capital of the South, this is the Run ATL Podcast, and I am Mike Cosentino, your privileged host. It is absolutely my pleasure to take you on this audio journey. I'm joined by my good friend, as I always am, D2 Dolomite Dave Martinez is here as well. D2, so good to see you. What an exciting episode we have today. Yes, and uh, yeah, good to be here. It's, it uh, seems like it's been a while since we've gotten together, but uh, you know, you know, everything's great. Weather's perfect. I'm running, you know, and, and getting back post marathon, getting my speed back. So I feel pretty good. Well, I love the fact that you mentioned the weather because I feel like in recent episodes. And in fact, in a conversation we're going to unveil very shortly, once again, we do, or maybe it's just me, some belly aching about the weather because in an Atlanta, it's been really cold. For those of you who have already listened to our episode with Carrie Tollefson, you know we touched on her residency in the great state of Minnesota and some things in my own past that make me somewhat fear the cold weather today. 66 degrees right now, a beautiful afternoon. We're in here taping. We should be outdoors running. Yeah, I specifically uh, the other day uh, did not run in the morning because I wanted to run the afternoon where it was going to be, sun was going to be out, it's going to be warm. So actually running in the short sleeves and shorts, it felt awesome. Yes, I have a nice streak. Three days in a row in shorts, nothing more than just long sleeves. No multiple layers. I am enjoying it. I don't doubt. I'll be back to belly aching before long. It is only early March. We are not done with cold weather, I am certain. But nonetheless, we are enjoying this while we have it. We are also very much going to enjoy, and I believe our listenership as well will enjoy, Dr. David Reichlin, our featured conversation today. Yes, but before that, I mean, we want to talk about some some exciting uh, updates in the shoe world. You know, Asics has got this brand new shoe called the MetaRide. Um, so Asics is claiming it's their most technologically advanced shoe, which you know, it, you know, there's a lot of technically advanced shoes, but for Asics, this, I got to say this is true. It's a zero drop shoe, and it's you know based on past experiences. Asics has never really truly believed in the zero drop when everyone else was going zero drop. So now they're going zero drop. Um, it's a meta rocker design. So for those of you that aren't quite sure what that means, it uh, it sort of looks like a Hoka type of shoe where it's a maximal cushioning type of shoe, but it's not quite as maximal cushioning. Um, it's still a lightweight shoe based on my initial um, you know research. It's still lighter, slightly lighter than a Hoka Bondi. Um, lighter than an Asics Nimbus, um, for sure. So it, it, it's very going to be very interesting. They're still using their technology, their um, their uh, flight foam and their midsole with the gel for cushioning. So they're getting a really kind of cushion type of shoe, especially if you're laying on that on on that heel. You're going to really feel that cushioning. Um, but also they're using um, uh, the combination of that flight foam material is really creating a very responsive. Uh, type of uh, ride as well. So you're getting that cushioning with a fast feel and um, you know using for the first time they're using a knitted type of upper which I think most people really enjoy. It fits the foot a little bit better. It has that sock like type feel. You know the only drawback potentially would be that it's a $250 shoe 
But you know, we saw this, I think, three years ago when the Meta Run came out. And then we started seeing a lot of those technologies that were in that particular shoe trickle down into the Kayano, into the GT2000. Um, so it's possible we may see this type of technology in, in a couple of years trickle down. But for now, it's kind of an exciting shoe. It's geared more towards the serious runner, those that are trying to look for um, more of either a competitive advantage or even those are just looking for a greater enjoyment of their run, you know. So it'll be interesting, you know, we've got uh, a couple pairs that, uh, you know, uh, you know, we've got them available at our Midtown location, our Marietta location, we've got them online. I'm hoping to try a pair on and test them out myself. I'm excited about that. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll share our results, uh, you know, either in a future podcast or definitely through a YouTube video. So uh, stay tuned. I know you will do that. You will cozy up to your pair before long. We had to keep this under wraps for months, I kid you not. But now that we're in early March, we can start talking about it very publicly. One thing that we should not keep to ourselves now that it is March, of course, very, very quickly approaching AJC, Peachtree Road Race, Lottery, and some other fun things. If you wouldn't mind, D2, why don't you remind everybody what they need to know to be part of this year's, this year's 50th running of the AJC Peachtree Road Race. Right, so registration, and this goes for both members and those that are not ATC members. So the, the, the lottery registration and member, ATC member registration, happen simultaneously. So the dates for this are from March 15th to March 31st. So as a reminder, for those of you that uh, became an ATC member, you know, I think through uh, February, I can't remember the dates, but you had to, you can't register now to be an ATC member and get guaranteed entry. You had to be prior to, I think, February or even January. Um, you are guaranteed entry um, if you are an ATC member prior to that date. Anyone else has to go through the lottery. So this is happening simultaneously. Um, through March 15th through the 31st. This is the 50th year, so it should be a very special year for the AGC Peachtree Road Race. So if you want to sign up, this is the time to do it. Take your chances on the lottery if you are not a member, but do so because you don't want to miss it. It will sell out. It gets very difficult to find entries you know, in late June and even the days leading up to the race. So this is the time to register for that. Um, and then Along with those lines, for those of you that are looking for a training program, the Atlanta Track Club does do an in-training for Peachtree program. That also opens up on March 15th. You get you know fully supported training runs and training programs through the, uh, the Atlanta Track Club. I remember signing up for that almost probably eight years ago, and it was it's a phenomenal program. I would definitely you know recommend it for those of you that are looking to either do your first Peachtree Road Race or first time doing a 10K or just looking to improve your performance at this distance if you feel that you know you've never done a training program and being in a group type of environment is going to help i would highly recommend that you sign up for that those are great reminders and certainly atlanta track club members or those in general population do the math there are sixty thousand entries available there are almost forty thousand atlanta track club members many of whom will indeed register for the race again as long as they register during the time frame their entry is guaranteed which then means that less than half of the total registrations will be available perhaps for the open market you do not want to miss this time period the lottery or else should be your tagline going forward because like d2 said Entries will be extremely scarce after this registration period. They are every single year. I would imagine that will only be a hundredfold this year as we celebrate 
Peachtree Road Race number 5-0. D2, I am in a very celebratory mood already as we introduce this conversation. I mentioned who he was earlier by name. Now I want to give a little bit of backstory. First, there was a listener of ours who made this suggestion to us. I've already indicated in the previous episode I had no idea who Dr. David Reichlin was prior to getting this listener's very much appreciated submission. I did my research and now we've had our conversation with him. I am so geeked out about the work that he is doing. For those of you who are like I was and am not familiar with that name or his work, he is an anthropologist at the University of Arizona. He has his own lab. He oversees that as well as doing research and obviously instructing students and others. And what he does is he reconstructs activity levels throughout the course of time, seriously long periods of time. Human evolution, you'll hear us talk about seven million years worth of data. He explores energetics and physical activity levels across that entire time period. Just as importantly, he is still gathering data and doing research on existing human beings, maybe most specifically those who are currently and continue to live a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. And he brings it all together so beautifully and will continue to do so long after this conversation in the worlds of physiology, neurobiology, health and human services, and certainly one of those terms we like to throw around in our running stores, biomechanics. And it just is a beautiful conversation. It was such a great learning opportunity for me, D2. I know you feel the same, and I believe all of our listeners will have that same sense by the time this interview has concluded, and they have just warmed themselves with everything he knows and shares. We're going to bring it to you uninterrupted, unedited, and we're going to do so right after this very brief message. The future of running has taken shape. A meta rocker designed with flight foam and gel cushioning technology. It helps you run longer, easier. It pushes you endlessly forward and it never looks back. Introducing the ASICS MetaRide. Now available at our Big Peach Running Company locations in Midtown, Marietta, and online at BigPeachRunningCo.com. And welcome back to the Run ATL Podcast D2. I hope everyone could sense my enthusiasm for this conversation we are about to have. And in full disclosure, with all of the guests and featured conversations that we launch in the Run ATL Podcast, I know there is going to be tremendous information contained therein. And at the same time, I also have to admit that sometimes what I personally am looking for, what I'm listening for is that reminder that I need, that part of the guest's ability to connect me with something that perhaps I've not heard recently, not thought of recently, but in this instance, along with so many of our guests, I believe, I will be learning immensely. This is an opportunity for all of us to hear and consider things that are not necessarily reminders, but perhaps are brand new or brand new ways of thinking about something. David Reichlin, thank you so very much for being part of this. Well, thanks for having me on. And as a brief introduction for those of you 
you've listened to the intro, you know he is a professor. And for those of you that couldn't quite connect this, the School of Anthropology at the University of Arizona, we're going to unpack how someone who is studying anthropology in the Southwest is able to connect with runners on so many different levels. And here's what I'm going to use as a way to set the stage. At the University of Arizona, it indicates that David's research interests have two things that we should be mindful of. First of all, the lab that he oversees and directs is focused on this. And listen carefully as it indicates it's understanding how humans' unique evolutionary history explains modern human physiological variation and how we can use an evolutionary context to improve health and well-being today. Secondly, here's what they believe. It says very clearly, they believe a shift towards high levels of physical activity during hunting and gathering in the past led to a physiological requirement for physical activity to maintain the health of organ systems from our brains to our cardiovascular system to our musculoskeletal system. Boy, those are tough words to pronounce. David, I'm sure you will outdo me in that area, but you cover so much stuff. But before we go into some of that, how did you get interested in these things that are part of your focus and obviously indicate what you and your team believe? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, part of it is personal for me um, because I, I love to exercise. I, I love to run. And, and um, I, at, at some point, um, I started to get really interested in why I enjoy this activity so much. Um, you know, if we, if we think about, um, an evolutionary perspective, uh, one of the things that I studied for quite a while was, um, how important it is to save energy, um, in terms of your sort of evolutionary lineage. So for example, we do a lot of things that let us walk with very low energy costs. And the reason that that has happened over evolutionary time is that, any energy we save from walking can either go towards reproduction or it's it's just food we don't have to go find. Um, but one of the odd things that we do do is we go out for a run. And when you go out for a run, you're voluntarily spending a ton of energy. Um, so I started to think about, well, why why do we do this? Why do we need to do this to be healthy? And why does it actually make us feel good? I mean, you know, I always get a mood boost after an exercise session. So why is that? Why does expending, voluntarily expending more energy improve our health and well-being? So that's sort of the, the foundation of, of how we got into this work. Well, and you've gone way back. And when we say way back, just to make sure people understand, recently in an article that David was quoted in the Washington Post, he indicated bipedal movement goes back four to five million years, four to five million years. That is a huge time period, of course, David, to try to pull research, relevant research out, and then apply it to where we are today and making it something that we can use immediately. How do you take that much volume of time and determine where you can best pull activity or be, uh, best pull historical activity and figure out how to apply it into something that's useful for all of us to know about today? Um, 
Well, so we use kind of a, 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 a three-part approach. Um, the first part of that approach is, is looking at the human fossil record. So we examine um, evidence from the human fossil record, actually going back even further, going back almost 7 million years um, to understand how locomotor patterns have changed. So how has our skeleton changed to support different ways of moving around in the world? And, you know, the skeleton is, is a record not only of how evolutionary pressures have affected us and altered our patterns of movement, but it's also a record of the movement you do in your lifetime, right? Because your bones uh, change when you, um, when you become more or less active. They, they grow larger or get, uh, get smaller depending on your levels of activity. So you can actually look at bones in the fossil record and start to reconstruct how they were used over several million years. So that's one part of our research um, uh, program. Um, a second part of the program then is to, you know, from the fossil record, we know something about lifestyle changes. And, and one of the key ones was about two million years ago, humans became a hunting and gathering species. So we went from sort of living more ape-like lifestyles where we were foraging mainly for fruits in, in forested settings to hunting animals on more open landscapes. Um, and, and that, we think, involved a, a high level of physical activity. So we go and work with uh, groups that still live that lifestyle today. So there's still a few around the world that, that maintain a hunting and gathering lifestyle. Uh, so along with colleagues, um, Herman Ponser, who's at Duke University, and Brian Wood, who's at UCLA, we've gone to Tanzania to work with a group called the Hadza. They're, um, they're modern-day hunter-gatherers in, in East Africa. And so we look at physical activity levels and health and their patterns of movement um, in that lifestyle. And then the third part of our program to get at these questions is in the lab. So in the lab, we do studies of laboratory biomechanics, physiology, and neuroscience um, to kind of put all the pieces together, what we've learned from the fossil record and learned from living hunter-gatherers. We can then do experiments in the laboratory to see how those patterns affect health and well-being today. Well, you mentioned your study in Tanzania, and then you also mentioned the lab, but one of the things that I thought was fascinating, David, was almost how you created the lab within the Hadza in the trips that I've had a chance to just look at some of the photos. I see that you're using different ways to see what their movements are, how much energy they are expending, what their heart rate might be. So as we give everybody maybe a bit of a visual picture of what you and your colleagues are doing in Tanzania, might you kind of tell us what happens as you land and as you spend that time there and then what you're trying to glean from that time to take back to the University of Arizona so you can really dive in deep? Sure, yeah. Um, that's, I mean, honestly, that's probably my favorite part of the work is going out there. It's, it's, it's a pretty amazing opportunity, and it's, it's one that um, I feel very fortunate to have. Um, so, we, you know, we work with this, we work with these folks. Um, there are about a thousand of them uh, that are living in uh, the Serengeti in Tanzania. They don't live in a national park, so they live adjacent to a national park, so it's not really well-protected area. Um, and when we go out there, it's it's pretty rugged uh, living in the bush. So we're, we're in tents and 
Um, we're uh, camping in a in a camp with Hadza individuals. They are just the most amazing people. They're very welcoming, and they are, um, you know, they're they're just very fun and happy, and um, and they're very amazing to let us do the work that we do with them. Um, when we're out there, we're really interested. I mean everyone kind of has different things that they're interested in working on. Um, some of our main interests are in, as you mentioned, collecting physical activity data, which we do using wearable devices, pretty similar to what people use. You know, a lot of runners, uh, use watches that have accelerometers in them and, and GPS devices in them. And we use similar devices out in Tanzania. Um, we collect some more sophisticated biomechanics data using both video and also other kinds of wearable devices that give us data on muscle activity patterns and oxygen consumption. Um, and, and from that sort of suite of analyses, we're able to build a picture of what the physiological life of a hunter-gatherer really looks like. How much energy are they spending on a daily basis? How often are they moving at high speeds? How often are they um, are they active in a moderate to vigorous intensity type level? Um, and then what are the differences between men and women and kids? And so we're really sort of building this picture of, of hunter-gatherer um, physiological life. The reason we want to do that is that if we if we're assuming as we are that human evolution over the last two million years really occurred mainly within this lifestyle, it wasn't until about ten thousand years ago that we uh, invented new ways of living using agriculture. So for much of the last two million years, we were hunter gatherers. That's the lifestyle in which modern human physiology really evolved. So if we want to understand why, for example, exercise is needed to make us healthy. What we really want to do is figure out what were the conditions in which our physiology evolved that required exercise. And that's really that to do that, you have to look at those hunting and gathering populations. Well, and obviously you've gone to great lengths to replicate it to the degree you can. You already mentioned how few places you can go and, and find what you have found and obviously built a relationship through with the Hadza, the thing that I thought was also very cool and thinking about our audience, we recognize there are many people who are either listening or know someone who they're going to want to listen to this episode who've not made as big of a commitment or maybe refined that commitment to what we call a pedestrian active lifestyle. And yet you've been able to take what you've seen, what you've studied, what you've learned in Tanzania and then connect it with things that are more rightly published here in the United States from the Department of Health and Human Services. And what I saw you do in one of the papers that I read was compare the amount of activity the Hadza are getting with the amount of activity that is recommended by the Department of Health and Human Services. And there seems to be a pretty big chasm in terms of how successful we are here in these United States and how successful that tribe would be lauded to be if we were using that data. But more importantly, can you tell us about some of the findings in terms of their physical condition and some of the health benefits that are seemingly connected to their lifestyle? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're getting at a, at a, I think an important point, um, which is, you know, if you look at activity levels in a group like the Hadza, um, they are much, much higher than what we see in, you know, big epidemiological studies in the U S. So, um, our data suggests the Hadza. So if you, if you think about what sort of the CDC or, uh, department of health and human services recommends, they recommend that, uh, we get about 150 minutes per week of at least moderate intensity exercise. And um, you can sort of determine intensity through heart rate or, or through perceived exertion, that kind of a thing. Um, in the U.S., the, what we actually do is, is not nearly not anywhere close to that. We don't get anywhere near 100. Most people don't get 100 near 150 minutes per week. The Hadza hit 150 minutes in, uh, in about two days. So they're, they're far exceeding the guidelines, um, that the U S government recommends for health. And, and we actually know, you know, that if you go over 150 minutes per week, you, your, your sort of health benefits keep increasing. It's not as if that's the ceiling, you get no more benefits over that. So what we see in groups living this hunting and gathering lifestyle is very, very high levels of, of moderate intensity activity. I think one of the keys to understanding um, hunting and gathering life, though, is that most of the activity that they're uh, engaging in is moderate intensity. They are not, you know, ramped up at, at very, very high intensities for long periods of time. Um, at least in the in the data that we've collected, we don't see a ton of very, very high intensity activity. It's mostly a pretty moderate kind of endurance level activity. And then we connected to that, we see no evidence of any kind of uh, biomarkers of heart disease. So their their uh, blood lipid levels are, you know, well below the kind of thresholds that we would we we set in the U.S. for um, markers of heart disease. They have almost no hypertension. Um, they have very low levels of inflammation. They're just they're an extremely healthy group of people. Well, and, and you've said, and I, I, I would imagine this is part of, of doing research where you have to acknowledge that there are other variables. And you've said that certainly it is possible for other factors to play a role in that delta that exists between the levels of hypertension in the Hadza and that here in the United States. But at the same time, I think you can say with a tremendous amount of confidence and that we would certainly endorse in this medium that physical activity is important and can play a significant role in the way that we age and the way that we ultimately feel. When you look at the whole hunter-gatherer mindset, and you look at where we are here in the United States, one of the things that I saw that I thought, man, he may occasionally get some pleasure in stepping on people's toes. I'm going to read this. This is something that you mentioned in one of your talks, but I think it goes back to what you've learned and quite frankly, what I believe you've very correctly published. And that is you said, when our brains expanded, and I believe that's connected to what you've learned through evolution, but when our brains expanded, we didn't need our bodies anymore. We have big brains, but we don't look like athletes. And now 
I take that as a connection that as we've got the ability to do more with less physical activity, it is coming back to bite us a little bit in terms of our physical condition. Is that a fair assessment or translation of that statement? When our brains expanded, we didn't need our bodies anymore? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in a sense, I think we're, we're, the, the situation we're in today is one where we don't require physical activity to gain access to the kind of resources that keep us alive. And, and that is completely a product of, of our um, intellectual capabilities, right? I mean, we have designed a place to live where you can pretty much get off your couch maybe walk just a little bit to get to your car, walk just a little bit to get to the grocery store entrance. You could actually sit in a little scooter in a lot of grocery stores to get your food and then you go home and, and uh, or you can get in your car and drive through McDonald's and get your food. And um, and you don't have to use any physical activity to, to get those calories. Um, so we, we've designed an entire sort of infrastructure to reduce energy expenditures. Now that I mean, that's part of the that's part of the human existence, right? No, when you're given the opportunity to rest and relax, you do. It feels good. Um, and so, if you don't have the requirement of physical activity in your life uh, because you need to go out and forage for food, you know, it's very easy to choose not to. And so, yeah, I mean, I think the the modern society has created a major mismatch between the way we live today and the way our bodies were basically evolved to um, experience the world. And that's, you know, chronic disease today, quite a bit of it is probably is related to some of this kind of mismatch. Well, and I'm going to use that statement you made about rest and relaxation and the fact that it feels good and then pair it against something that you've also called out that maybe rests alongside that, perhaps even butts up against it a little bit. And that is, and one of the things that's fascinated me about you, David, is it's easy to talk about physiology, I would imagine, when you're someone who's interested in running and obviously interested in the evolution of our bodies. It's perhaps somewhat interesting for you to think about hunter-gatherers and going back in time, whether it's five to six million years or whether it's to a tribe that is unique in its current day existence as an anthropologist, but just as expert are you at neurobiology. It's not just the anatomy and physiology where you've really staked a claim. It's also in the neuroscience that comes alongside this. So you mentioned that it is easier. It is oftentimes more comfortable, even what we pursue to be able to rest and relax. But at the same time, I also know that you believe that this type of activity, what we might call exercise, physical activity, even the pursuit of an endurance-minded lifestyle, it can feel good. How is that true? What have you learned about why exercise, even though we may do everything we can on certain instances to avoid it, actually also makes us feel good? Not just look better, not just be healthier, but actually makes us feel good. Right. It's a great question. It's and, and honestly, that 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 one question drove a lot of sort of why I got into this um, area of research, because I really I was really intrigued by how I felt after a run. 
um, and, and how, you know, in some ways dependent I got on that sort of mood boost. So, um, one of the, there are a lot of things that happen once you start exercising, um, a lot of changes that happen to your neurochemistry that support, um, changes in the way that you feel. We're not totally sure, um, why they occur. Um, we have some ideas. So I've studied, uh, I mean, your listeners are probably pretty well versed in the idea that when you exercise endorphins, um, get upregulated and these are sort of neurochemicals that, um, that are associated with reward centers in your brain. Um, I studied another system called endocannabinoids. Uh, these are sort of your body's, uh, form of the active ingredient in marijuana. Um, but they're, you know, a little, they're, they, they, they also, um, activate cannabinoid receptors in your brain, just like marijuana does. Um, but both endorphins and, um, endocannabinoids, not only do they make you feel good, but they are also analgesics. They're also pain relievers. So I tend to think that what, what happens and what evolved, uh, to happen is that when you start exercising, your body produces these sort of natural analgesics. Um, that help relieve some of the uh, muscle pain that comes with endurance exercise. Um, and luckily, these same compounds not only relieve pain, but they also make you feel good. So um, it may be that part of uh, sort of the, the selection pressures on these neurochemicals was also as a motivator. So while you're exercising, uh, having these good feelings may make you continue, may give you sort of the motivation to keep going. That's really difficult to test, um, but we do know that. Uh, but we do know this happens, right? We know that you get these neurochemical um, changes, and we do think that they are a product of our evolution. Well, one of the things that we uh, were able to show uh, several years back was that not all organisms, not all animals, get this exercise-induced change in endocannabinoid levels. Um, so we looked at humans and dogs. We also looked at another, uh, animal, the ferret and humans and dogs, both are endurance athletes, but we both have adaptations to be endurance athletes. And we both get this endocannabinoid change when we exercise. Ferrets do not have any kind of evolutionary history of endurance athleticism, and they don't get a change in endocannabinoid levels when they exercise. So we think that's pretty good evidence, at least a start of evidence, that um, that the endocannabinoid shift with exercise is sort of only happening in animals that have an evolutionary history of exercise. Um, and that probably explains a bit about why exercise makes us feel so good. Well, and I know that to be true. One of the things I want to call out is a phrase that you used that I know others have heard in a different context, perhaps one they might even think about on their own, but a sweet spot. And oftentimes, as you can imagine, those of us who are part of the leadership team in the collection of a running store or some kind of running industry possibility are going to use the run as a way to have a meeting. And you indicated that low-intensity walking hardly causes an increase, and I love the way you pronounced it, but I'm going to pronounce it wrong. I am just certain of it. Endocannabinoids? That's not yeah, right. That's, good. Yeah. that's not bad? All right. So low-intensity walking hardly causes an increase in endocannabinoids. But moderate-intensity exercise, and this is how that is defined, when you can still talk 
but you're breathing too hard to sing contributes to, and here's that phrase, a sweet spot, which produces more of those endocannabinoids. So D2, I think about when we have a meeting scheduled at 8.30, but we meet instead at 7, and we go for a run, and we may be talking about what our meeting would entail, but we're also talking about other things related to our lives, the business, whatever it might be that happens to cross our mind. But David, I think you would suggest then that we get into that sweet spot, and as a result, by the time that meeting starts at 8.30, we're just in a better state of mind than we would have otherwise been if we would have both slept until roughly eight o'clock and then mad dash to wherever we were meeting. Is that a fair statement? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, that that you know that boost, that mood boost that you can get from from a, a workout um, can change your day. And I know, you know, I mean, I know people exercise at different times a day, and it, it can have the same effect. Um, you know, obviously at night, it's not only a morning thing, but I will say this, I've started doing some different kinds of exercises and, and different kinds of programs. And some of them have start. I've, I've been doing them at night. Um, and when I do it at night, then, you know, the next day, maybe I won't go for my morning run if I, if I went pretty hard the night before. Um, but my wife actually told me, you know, you got to, you just have to go out and do something in the mornings because your mood is not right if you're not getting that exercise in the morning. So, um, I think that's, you know, that's sort of a key part, at least for a lot of us, a key part of starting the day off, right. Is getting in that run and it just sets you up for, um, for having that, that mood boost throughout the day. Excellent. So we can make the recommendation, and it is not all self-serving to Big Peach Running Company, that when you set your alarm, set it with enough time to be able to get out of bed and get some exercise in before you get about the rest of your day and not uh, not be giving anybody anything but quality advice. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my advice is, you know, if whenever you can get some exercise, do it. You know, I certainly... I certainly would say if, if it works for people to exercise in the afternoon, that's great. But I also think one of the ways that, and this, this isn't just me, this is supported by, uh, by good research, that one of the ways uh, we can get people to not only start an exercise program but stick with it is if it makes them happy, is if it, if it makes them feel good and, and they start to rely on that activity to, to boost their mood. And I, I personally think that mornings are a really good time to do that because, you know, you make an appointment with yourself in the morning to do it. Nothing else can get in the way of that. You, you're not staying late at work and you miss your workout. You've made that appointment and you also get that mood boost for the whole day. So if you can do it in the mornings, I think that tends to be a, a pretty good time to get into a regular program. Um, but anytime anyone can get out there and exercise, I'm all for it. <laughs> you and us both, and that's very specific. And yet, again, for those of you who know someone, maybe you say, well, I already get a pass. I am already that person. Send this, share this episode with those who you want to have such a favorable influence on. Tell them to go back and listen to that again and again and again, because it's not just you personally coming to want to recommend an exercise routine for someone you care about. We have research that has now taken 
taken into account millions of years that touches on both the physiology as well as the neurobiology that suggests it's a good idea. So that way, when you recommend it to a friend or family member, they don't have to believe it's only coming from you. It is coming from lots of valid research. David, one of the things that I thought was fascinating and where maybe running store meets anthropology, some of the terms I'm going to challenge myself with that you obviously are a bona fide expert, evolution, physiology, I just mentioned neurobiology, exercise science, energetics, physical activity. I could figure out how they all seemingly went well together once I connected to the evolution and the anthropology. But what I was so wonderfully surprised was another area where you called things out and it just crosses with things that running stores think about all the time, even if we don't have the educational markers that suggest we've all got a PhD or that we've all studied it for decades, and that is the area of biomechanics. You've spent quite a bit of time here. You're a runner yourself. You know that we have all at this point survived what was known as barefoot running or that period of minimalism. Right. One of the areas as I've kind of gotten into and through my 40s that has been more of a challenge to me is keeping my Achilles tendon to feel like I can do this six or so days every single week. Can you tell us a little bit about the research that you've done biomechanically and some of the things that you found or that you might recommend to all walkers and runners so that they can make this a lifestyle and a lifetime pursuit, not just a season or training for one single race. Sure. You know, I, I hesitate to wade too deeply into it just because I think it's, I think we're in a, in an interesting area of trying to figure out, um, how best to keep people from getting running from, from ending up injured right through these, through long distance and long-term running patterns. I think that the barefoot movement, um, opened up a lot of new doors for, uh, for research that I think will help us understand injury risk a little bit better, even though I'm not necessarily an advocate of taking your shoes off and running. Um, what I do think it's shown us is that the way that you place your foot onto the ground. So the pattern of your foot strike, um, can make a difference in how forces are generated up through your leg. And that can have uh, some kind of an impact on your level of injury risk. So one of the things that has come out of some of this research is that running with a higher cadence tends to reduce the kind of the loading patterns that occur at your knee. So if you're somebody that is uh, that has had a lot of knee injuries in your life, that might be something to look into to think about um, how it feels when you run at a slightly higher cadence that brings your foot down underneath your body so that you're, you're not overstriding. And it's that overstride that puts high loads on your, on your knee. You mentioned your Achilles tendon that can be affected greatly by foot strike patterns as well. And so if, if you're someone who has Achilles tendon problems, you need to, you may want to try out different types of foot strikes to see how that affects the strain on your Achilles. I don't, I'm someone who tends to think, you know, we find a, a, a form and a pattern that feels good to us. Um, and in general, if we're pretty good about increasing volume and speed at a responsible level, so not 
jumping into really high volumes too quickly and not jumping into speed work too quickly that our body kind of naturally finds a pretty decent form. Um, but I do think that you can play around with a little bit to alter loads if you're uh, experiencing injuries. You know, I, I run in shoes that have a pretty low heel toe drop just because I like to run at a higher cadence. And as soon as I switched to that pattern, I stopped having some of the injury, mild injury problems that I'd had. But I don't necessarily think that's for everyone. I think it, I think you have to sort of find the pattern that feels the best to you. But, you know, and I know I'm kind of waffling back and forth and I'm doing that for a reason, because if someone tells you that we know the answer, they're lying to you. Um, my point is you can, should do the research and learn how tweaks to your stride and tweaks to your foot strike are expected to affect the loading patterns that happen in your limb and apply that to the kinds of injury patterns you've had. So let me ask you this, and this will give us a chance to better get to know you personally. You've already indicated your affinity for the sport of running. Certainly D2 and I and many of our listeners share that with you. How long have you been running? It sounds like you've had an affinity for that as part of your exercise routine for quite some time. I have. Yeah. It's, um, I, I started running, uh, when I was in uh, junior high, um, way back when, and I ran through high school. Um, and then I actually stopped for quite a while, you know, I went to college and, you know, things happen in college and you sure uh, find other ways to spend your time. And I did that for quite a while. And then I, I got back into running, um, when I started doing my postdoc, uh, which was, now in about 2004 or so. Um, so I had quite a hiatus, but then since 2004, I've been a pretty regular runner. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I love every second of it. Couldn't imagine my life without it. That's awesome. So you're back at it after a self-admitted hiatus of 15 years. How many miles approximately do you think you do a week or let's say a month, if that's easier to calculate? Yeah, it, it varies so much. Um, generally, I try to run between 30 and 40 miles a week, depending on if I'm training for something specific. Um, I've, I finally started adding in strength training because now I'm in my 40s and I feel like, you know, I started to come around to the idea that I probably need to do some more. So I've actually sort of ramped down my total mileage and ramped up some of the intensity of my runs and then added in more strength training. Um, but yeah, about 30 to 40 miles a week seems like a pretty happy spot for me in general. Excellent. And do you have a favorite way to run, whether it's in a certain place or a certain distance or a certain race that you always find yourself either saying, I'd like to do it, I'd like to do it again, or I'm training for it? Well, I love half marathons. So okay. that's sort of my, um, I, there's something about that distance that, you know, you can, it's long enough that you feel like you did something that day, um, but you can run it hard and you can, you know, you can really push yourself. I always, you know, marathons are great. They're wonderful, but uh, they, you know, something about, them, you know, it just, it's, it takes so much out of you and it takes so much out of you to the training. And, and I feel like half marathons are like the perfect distance for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I enjoy, running at all different intensities. You know, I, I love my easy runs. I really love my tempo runs. Um, and it gets back to, you know, actually some of the research, um, that 
you know, there, there are these endocannabinoid and, and other neurotransmitter activities that make you feel good. But there's another thing that makes you feel good. There's a, there's sort of this psychological, um, feelings of accomplishment that we have, um, that, uh, are different probably than any other animal out there where, you know, if you have a great tempo run or a great interval workout, you may be exercising in an intensity that doesn't trigger some of these neurochemical activities, but you feel great afterwards because you accomplished something, you hit a goal, you hit your pace, whatever it was. So we have lots of different ways to play with our running routines to improve our mood and improve our, ourselves psychologically. And it's it's not only relying on some of these just uh, you know modern intensity neurotransmitter activities, but setting goals and achieving them. Well, as you know, as I've already admitted, I just gush over all that you know and all that you've put out into the world for the rest of us to consume. So I'm going to continue to poke at some things that maybe are a little bit more personal so that I and, and maybe some of our listeners get to know you as well. For those of you who have not camped out on the fact that he is at the University of Arizona, right now we are taping in late January, even this will be later in the winter, when we release this episode, Atlanta is in a little bit of a deep freeze where the temperatures have been in the teens at night and when it's been tough for us to sometimes walk out our house in the dark and get started. There are those compatriots of ours in the Midwest where frigid temperatures, perhaps dangerously frigid temperatures, are with them every single moment of the day this week. And you mentioned, David, that when we started this conversation, it was 71 degrees and that your run was a balmy mid-50s earlier today. But knowing that there is this thing called dry heat and there is this thing on this side of the country called humidity, <laughs> which is better in your estimation? And when I've been to Tucson, it's been during the summer, the two times I've been there, and it is darn hot and 105 is 105, and I actually think 88 with 100% humidity is a little bit better, but maybe that's the way I've conditioned myself. Maybe my ancestors from however many millions of years ago somehow figured out how to deal with humidity. But what would be both your personal and perhaps scientific take on running in dry heat, and then those of us who think, yeah, it was really cold this morning, but my goodness, that's better than what we have coming here to Atlanta in July or August. Well, yeah, I mean, I think on some level we all we acclimate, right? Everyone acclimates to this, their sort of local environment. Um, but I'll say, you know, 105 is 105. And, you know, running in 105 is not something I recommend. I, <laughs> I, I see, you know, I mean, I see people out here in Tucson running in the middle of the day. And I even I think they're, you know, a little nuts. But um yeah, I, you know, I have trouble with humidity. I mostly uh, because you know, I think that my thermoregulatory adaptations through sweat are are um, really kind of mucked up when things are really humid. Even when I lived in I lived in Boston for a couple of years, it gets relatively humid there. I never quite felt right running in the in the dead of the summer. Um, in Tucson, you know, you can manage it. Um, if you go out for a run at 5:30 in the morning in July, maybe it'll be in the low 80s. But it's like you said, it's pretty dry, and I can you you sort of get used to that. I won't call it pleasant, um, and I definitely look forward to October or so here because that's when things start to get a little bit nicer for running. Um, but I would personally, I always take kind of a dry heat as long as it's not 
you know, 100 degrees for running. <laughs> All right. So that's the Southwesterner in you. And right. another report or paper that I saw, you referenced the man versus horse race, which I know is not too far from where you are in Prescott, Arizona. Have you done that event or have you been to it? I haven't. You know, I have uh, colleagues that have done it, um, but I, I haven't I haven't made it up, up there for it. Is it on um, your personal but it's, you know, I mean, it's an interesting race. You know what? Is it on your personal bucket list? Uh, I don't know. You know, I'm kind of, I would love to say yes, but uh, the distance is, I'm probably sort of moving away from marathon level distances. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really have one in my future and don't really, not sure that I'd want to do another one um, at this point. So yeah, I don't know if the man <laughs> human versus horse races is in my, in my future. Well, for those who are not familiar with that event, we'll put that in our show notes. And certainly that is unique for anybody who's looking for something different as a challenge this year to ensure they get the most out of their pedestrian active routine. This would certainly do that. David, I also have to ask, and this is perhaps this intersection for me of my personal interest in and around fitness exercise and of course running and the work that I get the good fortune of doing. I say on many episodes, I have the best job on the planet. And there is a scene that I've put in front of our organization and our leadership team on multiple occasions. Given your work in Tanzania and my affinity for the opening scene in Last of the Mohicans, where these Native Americans are working together to have this successful hunt. Are you familiar with that scene? Do you know what I'm referencing? I'm, I'm trying to, th I mean, I've seen the movie, but is it, are they, are they trying to run down uh, they, something? They are. That's okay. exactly right. And the reason I love it so much in organizational context is when you look at the way the camera work is done, you can't immediately tell that they're actually working together. It all seems like they're all kind of doing their own thing. And yet then when they do make the kill on the elk, you realize that all along they have been working together where they're trying to move the animal to a certain place where they're trying to exhaust the animal and where everybody has this role to play. Whether you're the best shot, whether you have the best fitness, whether you know the terrain the best, they all have this role to play in order to be part of this successful hunt. So my curiosity, of course, with all the work you've done in Tanzania, not so much about their physical condition and some of the things that you've learned and wonderfully published, but having really bird's eye on how that works, what would you say, and this doesn't need to be scientific, this just has to be maybe a personal viewpoint you would share, is the teamwork or the leadership lesson in what you've learned from the Hadza? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think uh, the Hadza, they, their sort of way of doing things is um, it's very egalitarian. Um, and it's very, you know, there there is no sort of chief of the group or head of the group. People decide things by consensus. Um, and, you know, that's... That sometimes works in our in our uh, businesses or, or you know in my lab, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but 
you know, they'll break off from each other when they need to do something um, on their own and they'll work together when it work, makes sense to work together. Um, so I'm not sure how well I can sort of apply that philosophy to to um, to, you know, our, our sort of way of doing things. But I will say that the that sort of their consensus building is a real breath of fresh air. I mean, the, the way that they come together and decide what's going to happen that day um, is it's it's pretty it's a pretty amazing process to watch and to see. So um, I, I, I hope that we take something from that at times that we, we think about consensus building more often than we seem to. Wow, what a great statement to make. And ladies and gentlemen, he is Dr. David Reichlin. He is part of the School of Anthropology at the University of Arizona. He has done a terrific job, and I know will continue to do great work that links evolution with high physical activity and the benefit that it provides all of us and those who we care about physiologically, neurobiologically, even biomechanically with what he sees, ultimately documents, and then has the courage to publish. Dr. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you for being part of this little broadcast. And certainly, as I mentioned before we fired up the mic, when you come to Atlanta, we would be honored to be able to play a small role in introducing you to the great city of runners, to Running City USA, and have you spend some time with us as our guest. Well, thanks so much for having me on, and I will definitely come out and look you guys up. Awesome. We'll look forward to that. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this very brief message. It's winter, and that spring half marathon or marathon will be here before you know it. As your runs get longer, you'll need additional fuel to power through those long runs and get you across the finish line. Everyone has different needs and tastes, so we recommend that you experiment with different gels, bars, and hydration products to see what works best for you. Stock up and save. Purchase 10 or more individual packets and save 10%. Buy a box and save 15%. Clubs and training groups can combine their discount for additional savings up to 25% off. Come into any Big Peach Running Company location and stock up so you're ready for those long runs. And welcome back to the Run ATL Podcast D2. That was so cool. And in fact, I feel like I have just outed myself with my crush on David and all of the good work he's doing. Talked about it before the episode, obviously communicated it substantially throughout our conversation. And then, of course, in this intro, did so again. Thanks to Dr. Reichlin for that time. And hopefully everybody is better for it. I know I am, but I have been remiss now getting your thoughts on the work he does and now having been part of that conversation, what you think of what he's doing and any takeaways you might have. Well, I thought it was an interesting, you know, not knowing what his study and his background was, I thought it was going to be more about form and sort of referring as you did in the in the conversation, like the born to run and natural running. That's what I thought the conversation was going to be about and not really the evolution or the the study of if anthropology of, of, of the human race, you know, through motion. And it's interesting because as he talks about, you know, our evolution as, you know, hunter and gatherer and needing that exercise. And that's how we got our exercise in the past was we had to hunt. Otherwise, we didn't survive. There's survival instincts to either run away from prey or be the prey and hunt and, and work in teams or whatever it is to hunting, you know, what your next meal was and providing for the tribe. Um, and we've gotten, you know, 
more comfortable. There's a lot more things that are convenient where you can, you never have to leave the house. You can sit on your couch, your lazy boy and order everything from your phone, whether it's groceries, whether it's just takeout, whether it's movies, streaming services, you know, packages that you're having shipped driving directly to your front door. It kind of reminded me of a scene in the movie Wally where people had just become, you know, fat slobs who could not do anything because machine and everything else had provided uh, everything uh, for them because that's how society kind of built it. We had relied too much on convenience. Um, and it's just, you know, it's not really the society I think that we want to become. Convenience is always great. But I think, you know, what direction are we going in, you know, 10, 20, 50 years from now, if we're not taking advantage of the ability, the, and I would say almost a privilege to be physically active, to go on a day like today where it is, you know, 66 degrees and go out for a run or even a walk outside and just to help our, you know, just our own health, you know, and just to live a little bit longer and enjoy life, you know, outdoors and being active. Well, that is somewhat of a sobering thought, but true nonetheless. And that's why we say, and everybody will hear it again at the end of this episode, as we always say, may your best miles be those covered on foot. And my goodness, if that conversation did not indicate that that is true, has been true for millions of years, and hopefully will be true for millions more. Before we leave you, we will of course be back in two weeks. It will be an episode you will not want to miss. Wikipedia rightfully says our next featured conversation is one of the best American distance runners in history. He is Bob Kennedy. He has become a friend of mine over the last 10 years. For those of you who do not know that name, he was in the 19. 96 Olympic Games here in Atlanta. Certainly a world-class runner years before that and then years after that. He did not retire until 2004. For now almost 15 years, he has been in the same industry. Dave and I are in Run Walk Specialty. He's having a blast. We've become good friends and colleagues and he is gonna bring us his entire story and the conversation in just two weeks in an episode that we're calling Excellence is a lifestyle. It's something that you do not want to miss. D2, I look forward to being back together with you before long. Again, thanks for everything you do to pull this together. In the meantime, as we know, as we say, as we've said before, and will continue to say often, may your best miles be those covered on foot. Hey, y'all, if you enjoy our podcast, let us know. If you have topic suggestions, questions, or guests you'd like to hear on the Run ATL podcast, email us at podcast at bigpeachrunningco.com. That's podcast at bigpeachrunningco.com. Or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube.